going to be reading from Mark chapter 6 in a moment, verse 7. But I wonder if uh, you've ever done a training, uh, learning a skill or, or, or something, and then the day finally arrives when you get to put it into practice on your own. Um, it can be exhilarating and it can be terrifying. So I am... Uh, I am, uh, do I need to use a handheld? Sorry, I'm getting hands on it. Can I have a handheld? Let's just make this easy. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, yeah, when we, when we get to move from training and learning and observing and maybe being watched to doing something by yourself, it can be exhilarating and it can be terrifying at the same time. So I'm aware of people who are on the way of or have just gotten their peace and exhilarating, you get your independence, you get to go on your own, terrifying for the parents, possibly for everyone else on the road as well. The disciples have been with Jesus for months. They've been learning from him, they've been watching what he's doing, they've been listening to his message and taking that to heart. And finally, as we're about to read, Jesus sends them out. It's their turn. They get to do it. So we're going to be reading Mark chapter 6, verse 7. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except the staff, no bread, no travelling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, no, John, the one I, is, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod, and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. And at once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded to bring John's head. 
So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother and when John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. And then verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So Jesus summons his disciples and then he sends them out in pairs. They're on their own. They get to start doing the stuff. But isn't that interesting? Some people leaders are enjoying going solo. But Jesus sends the disciples out in pairs. Ministry for Jesus and for the disciples is never a solo affair. I mean, if Jesus, if anyone had the potential to do ministry on their own and be really effective, it was Jesus, the Son of God. But no, the first thing Jesus does when he starts his ministry is to gather disciples, call them into community and start to train them. And I don't know about you, but I actually find this really comforting because Jesus has called you and me to mission, but he hasn't called us to do it alone He calls us into what we might say is a missional community, a community of people on mission together. That's great because in community we can encourage one another, we can support one another, we can hold each other accountable, keep each other on track, keep each other strong in the faith. Those who have less experience can learn from those who have more experience. And you know, actually, when you're in a group, if you've just got a group of people of average intelligence, they will outsmart a genius, mental genius, who is on their own trying to solve a problem. We're smarter together as well as stronger and better together. And so Jesus has summoned, interesting word, isn't it? You and me to mission. The question is, who are we on mission with. Well, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits, over demons. Of course, as we've seen, driving out demons was a big part of Jesus' ministry. It was a sign that the kingdom of God was near because demons can't stay when the king moves in. Now, demon possession can be a controversial topic. We've spoken about it a few times. It's something we often associate with the past, like in Jesus' time or in other places, maybe in Mozambique or somewhere like that, not really here at home. But you know what? I recently heard a statistic that in America, as attendance at Catholic masses and church in general is going down, requests for exorcisms by Catholic priests is going up. Isn't that interesting? It's not that people are becoming less spiritual, it's that they don't have the spiritual anchors that we've had in the past. When I worked as a funeral director, uh, I walked into one of our branches one day and two of the staff members were there before a funeral and they're talking about this spirit, this old man they had seen sitting on a chair just where I, as I was walking in, just where I walked past. I'm like, I felt nothing, but it's the sort of story that happens all the time. 
kind of interesting. What do you do with that? I don't know what to do with that. But it's too common for me just to disregard. This, of course, is common in many cultures that just perhaps are a bit more spiritually attuned or a bit less sceptical than we are in the West. But it happens everywhere here as well. It's just that we don't always recognize it. We psychologize it or medicalize it or don't, don't see it. Jesus has given his followers authority over demons, over the demonic realm. We have a king living in us. And so when the king is present, demons have to move out. Consider this. You go into someone's house. That's not just you going into the house. You are taking the kingdom of God with you. We carry that authority but we do have to be living in submission to the king and know our authority in him. I'm not saying you go looking for a demon around every corner. I'm not saying that everything we see is demonic. I'm just saying we need to ask God for discernment. Um, ask him to open your eyes and pray that the liberating kingdom of God will come into people's lives and set them free. Whereabouts? In our homes, in our classrooms, in business, uh, everywhere. Uh, God wants to set people free into the kingdom of God. So as Jesus sends the disciples to do all this work, he sends them out traveling really light. Don't pack anything. Really light. Not an extra shirt, no money, no nothing. Now, it's really important that we remember as we read this story that Jesus is giving them a command for a specific time and a specific place. The Messiah was working, walking on the earth. They're going to prepare for Jesus physically to enter those villages. Um, so after Jesus had risen from the dead and gone to heaven, the disciples didn't see the, the need to follow this command so rigidly. And, and in fact, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, y you remember how I told you not to take all that extra stuff? Yeah, ignore that now. New set of rules. Take what you need. Be ready for trouble. He said, take a sword. don't know what that means, but I don't carry a sword. With me. Not a physical one anyway. So we're not taking this literally now, but of course there are principles that we can learn. And certainly traveling light is a value that Christians have always held, whether it's in mission or in life. Traveling light keeps us flexible. For the disciples here, when, when Jesus was sending them out, it meant that they could move quickly from one place to another between villages. But it can also have a spiritual application, of course. It can have just practical things. You know, last year we had to close down our toddler jam ministry. That was that was kind of hard and, and a big deal. But because we're flexible and nimble and light, and uh, although it was painful, we didn't hold on to things too too tightly. We were able to pivot, and now we've started playtime, which is uh, serving another need really well. So traveling light also keeps us dependent on God. When you've got nothing and you're going out there, what do you do? You pray. <laughs> when you've got nothing, does wonders for your prayer life. You see, the problem 
we can have is that if we become too self-reliant, we lose our edge. We lose our reliance on God. It's only by faith and reliance on God that we'll see God-sized things happen. And so the challenge for us is, are we traveling light in this life? Or am I encumbered by all sorts of baggage? might be physical, might be financial. Money can be baggage that holds us back. It might be emotional. Am I traveling light so that I can respond to God when he calls? Well, one of the consequences for them, of course, in traveling light is they have to accept hospitality. If you don't even have an extra robe, you don't have a sleep bag, you don't have, you get cold at night. And so Jesus says, when you go into someone's house, you don't move on. You don't get an upgrade. Someone else in the village likes you more, got a better house. No, you stay with the person who first put you up. And this uh, has something to do with first century hospitality. But what it also means for the disciples is that when they go into a village, they can build a relationship with the host. And people are going to know they're genuine, not just in it for the better offer. Building relationships and identifying people who are open to the gospel is, is a key to our missional strategy at Bentley. And as I was talking to the Falconers uh, during the week, I just realized, you know, we're really using very similar missional, missional strategies. Um, although our cultures are so different in some ways, we find ourselves in similar situations in the way we need to approach people with the gospel. So what we do, we, we, you've heard us before, uh, talk about people of peace. Uh, finding people who like you, who li- uh, listen to you and who serve you. And when these things sort of align, it, it, it sort of signals that someone might be open to hearing uh, uh, about the gospel. There's an alignment, uh, a relationship there. But when you have people like that in your life, you probably naturally, you know, a lot of our relationships can be very casual and there's nothing wrong with that, but we want to dial it up a little bit when, when we sense the relationship going deeper and we want a bit more of a meaningful relationship. We start to share a little bit more deeply with people. At some point, we're going to want to take that, just dial it up a little bit more. And we might want to start talking about spiritual things. Now we're not going to Bible bash them or dump it on. But maybe it's asking questions about what they believe on spiritual things. And then when the time comes, we might, might want to dial it up again and help them discover Jesus. And so we might do something like, hey, do you want to read the Bible with me or would you like to come to church with me? But, you know, you're not just doing it cold turkey. Uh, you've built a relationship. In our discipleship cluster, we call this uh, crossing the chicken line because yeah, a lot of us are chicken when it comes to doing this sort of thing. I know I am. But what happens when you cross the chicken line and they say, no, they don't want to take up your invitation? Uh, well, for the disciples, it got kind of interesting, isn't it? Wipe the dust off your feet, which was basically a sign of judgment. There was a whole bunch of cultural stuff there that was very meaningful in uh, their context, but it was a sign that God's judgment was coming to that place. They rejected the message of the Messiah. But remember, this is a particular time and place, and I don't recommend you go wiping your feet on someone's doormat when you leave their house as a sign that judgment is coming. I do recommend that you continue to pray for a friend like that 
and to be a friend. You know, as I've done this, I've crossed the chicken line a few times. <laughs> I've had, I'm, I'm a great story of failure. Uh, I'm, I'm, if you want to feel good about yourself, look at me. I've had more people say, no, I don't want to read the Bible with you than, than that I do. But you know, it doesn't get weird because it's come out of relationship. They know that it's come out of a genuine place of love and friendship. I think one of the things this teaches us too about what Jesus says to the disciples, move on if they don't listen to you, is don't sweat it when people don't want to hear the message. It's not up to you or me to force them. Um, you know, don't flog a dead horse. There will be people who want to hear it. Go find them. You know, I'm, I'm a terrible fisherman. You know any fisherman here? Yeah, I'm, I'm a terrible fisherman. There's a whole lot of trauma and history involved in that. But one of the things I do know is that you cast your line out where the fish are biting. Sometimes you have to cast in a few places to find where that is. Not only does Jesus say not to fret when people reject the message, he actually says expect it. Expect rejection. And so this story is strategically located between two others. Now, one I read this morning, and I read it because it's kind of interesting. Verse 30, so, so Jesus sends out the apostles. And remember, we've seen Mark do this before. Then Mark tells a story of the beheading of John the Baptist, which evidently has happened previously. And then he tells us about the end of this, that the disciples come back. The story before this, if you remember last week or the week before when Fletcher told it, is the story of Jesus being rejected in Nazareth. Jesus rejected in his own hometown, sends his disciples out. story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Do you think Mark might be trying to tell us something? There is a cost to sharing the gospel, to being a missionary, and if we're sharing the gospel, we're all missionaries. There's a death, there's a death for self, Sometimes there's a death to relationships, but hopefully it's because people reject us, not because we've done something stupid or rejected them. But it is a risk we have to take. It's a risk we have to take out of love for God, but also out of love for the people we want to share with, because, friends, eternity is at stake. There's a cost. The last few decades, I, I've seen Christianity move, and some of you will have seen even more, from being respected, you're a Christian, that's a good thing, to this being tolerated, well, okay, to now a lot of people consider Christianity evil. I don't know about you, but I go into some context and I'm like, should I even tell them I'm a pastor? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, it's pimps, politicians, pastors at the bottom of the pile almost. There's a cost to following Jesus. Elsewhere, he commands us to take up our cross. There's a death. It's painful, it's dangerous, but we need to remember that on the other side is glory and on the other side is freedom for people. Well, the disciples obey Jesus. They go out. They do what they've seen him do. They drive out demons. They teach what they heard him teach. They preach his message of repentance because the kingdom is near. It's their message and it's our message as well. 
The message uh, to turn around isn't a message everyone wants to hear, of course, but it's the message of life because it's about turning around to the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of love, and it's a kingdom of life. But it's about stepping out of our kingdom, kingdom of the world, into his kingdom. And as the disciples go out, the power and reality of that kingdom is displayed as they heal people and set them free. And this is a message we can share in, in that same spirit, and that same power. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. And, and, and here we might say, let me show you what it looks like. Now, for us, it might just be acts of love and service. Prayer for people. And who knows, maybe seeing a miracle. So as the disciples step out, stuff happened. People were healed and set free. And then the disciples excitedly gather around Jesus to tell him all the things that they had done and taught. And so what about you? And what about me? A day is going to come when we report to Jesus. What are we going to report? What stories are we going to have to tell him about what we said and did for him? And if that leaves you thinking, I don't know. Well, here's the first step. Just go ask him to help you create that kind of testimony. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of these first disciples. Lord, the warnings of Jesus are kind of scary, but they sort of take a bit of pressure off us as well. Father, help us to go out in love, humbly but boldly, find where the fish are biting, to not sweat it when they're not, but to work diligently for you in this by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that we will see miracles, we will see hearts changed as well. In Jesus' name, amen.